Uh, we've known from the start that John's biography of Jesus would involve wonderful acceptance of Jesus Christ and awful rejection of him. And we've known this because the prelude, the opening paragraphs of John's gospel, said as much. Here's one of the opening lines. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this double theme of acceptance and rejection reaches a climax today in chapter 12, where we are going to see the most extraordinary public displays of devotion to Jesus and terrible climactic rejection. We're going to see Mary of Bethany, the brother of Lazarus, honor Jesus with a $60,000 bottle of perfume poured all over his feet. And then we're going to see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to the great acclaim of the crowds. But in the middle of all that, we're going to watch Judas, one of the twelve, distance himself from Jesus. And we know where that's going. And we're going to see the Pharisees locked and loaded in their hatred of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to offer these final ominous words, if you glance down at verse 35, where we'll get eventually. You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, he left and hid himself from them. This was the authorities' last chance. He now hides himself from them. And through uh, chapters 13 to 17, we get no more public teaching. It's all just private teaching to his disciples on the last night at the Last Supper. For the authorities, the light is now withdrawn. Darkness indeed overtakes them. So chapter 12 is a climactic chapter. It simultaneously recounts the high point of devotion to Jesus and the moment when his fate is sealed. Or I feel like saying when his opponent's fate is sealed. So with all that in mind, let's begin the first section of John 12. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was amongst those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? 
it was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Thank you. The mention of the Passover, firstly, being six days out there in verse 1, really should concentrate our mind because we've known for quite a while that Jesus' ministry would culminate at a Passover. Uh, way back at last year's Passover in chapter 6, do you remember Jesus fed the 5,000 with bread? And then he said this was a picture of him offering his flesh on behalf of the world. And anyone who knew the Passover knew exactly what was going on here because the Passover was the, involved the sacrifice of the flesh of a lamb for the sins of the world and the eating of special bread for eight days in a row. So Jesus combines these thoughts to say that his ministry would culminate in being a kind of Passover. So here we are, six days out from the next Passover and just three kilometers from Jerusalem. If this were a movie, this is where the ominous music would come in the background. But it's not just ominous, it's also the moment of beautiful devotion from Mary. Uh, do you remember in last week's uh, passage, chapter 11, it's Martha that is the star of the story, Mary's sister. Remember, Martha gets the teacher's pet award from Jesus for being, you know, a theological nerd. She um, has the richest back and forth with Jesus in the whole of the gospel about the resurrection of the dead. Now Mary, her sister, comes to the fore, not for her theology, but as the gospel's most extravagant devotee of Jesus. She pours a huge amount of perfume on Jesus' feet. Normally you would wash the feet of a guest with water, or at least you'd get your servant to do it. And she's thinking, I'm not using water. I know, I'll get that perfume I have. And it's expensive perfume, we're told, and it's a huge amount. Uh, in the Greek text, it says a Roman litra of pure nard perfume. Uh, litra is precisely 330 grams of weight, which roughly translates, depending on you know, the kind of liquid it is, to about 330 mils uh, of, of liquid. I know our uh, footnotes say... Uh, half a litre, that's a little bit exaggerated. Either way, it's ridiculous. And, and it's super expensive. Um, when Judas does the sums on this, uh, which is apparently something he liked to do, he calls it, uh, in the Greek text, a th uh, 300 denarii, which is translated for us as a year's wages because one denarii was one day's wages. So 300 denarii is basically a year's wage. Now, the purchasing power between the first century and today is, you know, 
it's hard to make comparisons, but I think we are not far off calling this bottle of perfume about the value of $60,000. Which raises a bunch of questions, right? Like, what is a Judean peasant family doing with a $60,000 bottle of perfume? The answer is, they are not peasants. <laughs> they are not peasants. It's one of the dreamy things that has entered into modern Christian consciousness that Jesus only hung out with peasants and Jesus was a peasant and so on. That's rubbish. We know from other evidence that he had very high-born uh, elite followers in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Uh, Joanna is called the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's affairs. Uh, this is a palace official, the very upper echelons of Galilean society. And I think what we have here is the same. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are elites, not uh, peasants. And this is probably why in verse 10 uh, we're told that the chief priests wanted to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus because it's no good having someone so influential and high-born uh, calling everyone to look at Jesus. The next question is the one Judas asks in uh, verse 5. You see that? Uh, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And John hastens to add he wasn't the least bit interested in the poor. And you've got to remember, John was there, okay? So he knew uh, the background here. Uh, this was faux social concern. But it's still a good question. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And the answer is, there's something even more important than caring for the poor. And that is devotion to the Saviour. And that is surely what this is. Mary loves Jesus for all that she has received from him. The teaching, yes, her brother back from the dead, the sign of eternal life, all of that. And more than that, Mary has a hunch where this story is going. She's heard Jesus talking about giving up his life for others. And she's also heard the Pharisees issue an arrest warrant for Jesus. So she knows there's something ominous in the air, and I may not have my Lord with me. And that just fills her with love and thankfulness. In fact, Jesus um, connects this act of devotion with his death in verse 7. Leave her alone, he says to Judas. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This act of love anticipates Jesus' death and burial. And only a cold, economic, rationalist approach to life would see this act of love as a waste of money. In any case, uh, commentators often point out what footnote C in our Pew Bibles also highlights. Jesus' answer actually alludes to a portion of the Old Testament that calls on us to care for the poor. Uh, you see, it, it says that it alludes to Deuteronomy 15.11, which says, uh, there will always be poor people in the land. This is almost precisely the language Jesus uses. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus is saying you will have many more opportunities to care for the poor, and you must 
But there's something even more important than love of the poor. Love of the Savior. Now, I could make this a bit easier by pointing out that if we love the Savior, we will actually love the poor more. Because the Savior talked about the poor so much, so we'll love the poor. But I don't want to justify this on the basis of more social justice. I I just want to say with absolute clarity tonight, there is something more important than caring for the poor and needy. And that is devotion to our Savior. Giving him our all. There is a danger I have seen played out in many Christians, some of my dearest, where the focus pivots away from Christ toward one of the great causes Jesus called us to love. And as the years roll on, only the cause is left. And they've given up their fiery passion for the Savior. You know, I'm proud of this congregation, and I'm kind of proud as rector that I've continued the policy of the previous rector, Mark Calder, in making sure we're a church that cares for the poor and is generous to the poor. But, you know, if that concern ever overrides our devotion to the Saviour himself, we become Judas. Well, I almost feel like I should finish the sermon there, and you may feel that too, but this climactic chapter deserves our best tonight. So, uh, seatbelts on. Uh, This beautiful act of devotion on the part of Mary is soured, of course, by Judas's response. He distances himself from Mary, one of Jesus' best friends, and, and thereby distances himself publicly from Jesus himself. And then the whole scene is soured by verse 10, where it says the chief priest decided to kill the head of this elite family. They're going to go for Lazarus now. And and this terrible juxtaposition between devotion to Jesus and hatred of Jesus spills over into the next section as well, because Jesus is going to ride over the hill from Bethany into Jerusalem and perform the, the most obvious messianic act of the whole gospel to the great acclaim of the crowds. And yet the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus turns out to be locked and loaded. So let's read from verse 12. Thanks, Lindsay Ann. Continuing from verse 12. The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, 
went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among them, among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came, out, came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on, the, on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little, long, little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Thank you. Uh, so many things to point out there, but uh, I just want to point out two things. Uh, firstly, this entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the few stories beyond the trial, death, and resurrection that is in all four Gospels. So it's super important. Jesus rides uh, over the mountain from Bethany into Jerusalem, riding a donkey, which looks suspiciously like the fulfillment of one of the messianic prophecies about the king coming into Jerusalem riding a donkey, which is what verse 15 tells us. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. That's from Zechariah 9. Now, the importance of this event is put really well by Paula Fredrickson, uh, who's not a Christian, um, but an important scholar from Boston University, who rightly sees the connection between this event and the crucifixion. A straight line, she says, connects the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. A pilgrim crowd noisily proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, not to mention the coming of their king, would certainly provoke Pilate's attention and concern. With much less provocation, he had swung into bloody action before. Uh, see, this entry into Jerusalem is an explicitly messianic act. 
And so it provides the theological grounds for the religious authorities to get rid of Jesus. But it also provides the political grounds for Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to get rid of Jesus. Because here is a pretender to the throne. Now, those of you who have been reading John's Gospel, in fact, all the Gospels, will know that Jesus doesn't do many really public acts to say that he's the Messiah. In fact, this, this is the most public thing he does to really indicate that he's the Messiah. Normally, he's very cagey about it. And the reason, I think, is quite simple. In his day, Messiah, King of Israel, that language was mainly thought of in political and military terms. The Messiah would come and kill the Romans and establish the kingdom of God uh, on earth, right? And Jesus hasn't come for that. Jesus avoids the association with that title until he has filled uh, the perception of his ministry with a sense that he has come to give himself for others. He's come to die for sinners, not conquer sinners. And only when he feels that message has got through is he willing to do something really messianic, like come into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is the moment. The disciples will have known this doesn't mean he's the political ruler, but the authorities use that as a pretense to get rid of him. Uh, The Pharisees in verse 19, who have opposed Jesus for quite a while, say, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This line means way more than the Pharisees think. On their lips, the words, look how the whole world's gone after him, just means, look at this pilgrim crowd. But actually, it introduces the enigmatic reference in the next line to the Greeks. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to his brother, Andrew. Andrew and Philip together went to Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What on earth is going on here? It's actually a bit simpler than maybe it seems Um, because there's lots of assumptions that John is making in this text. Uh, Gentiles, that is non-Jews, Greeks, were allowed to come into one portion of the temple, the bit on the left, the so-called court of the Gentiles. But there was a giant balustrade right there in the middle that you can see, uh, which they weren't allowed to pass. In fact, we know there were five giant stone signs, we found one of them, uh, that said any Greek foreigner who crosses the balustrade only has themselves to blame for their ensuing thanatos, death. These five signs written in Greek, right? So Greeks didn't feel super welcome. They knew they were allowed in the court of the Gentiles, but there were always this sign they couldn't go any further. So here are some Greeks, Gentiles, interested in worshipping the God of Israel, and they want an interview with this famous Rabbi Jesus. Maybe they'd heard he was a little more flexible than the Pharisees and so would, you know, teach them the way of God. They go to Philip. He goes to Andrew. They go to Jesus. Why? Why those guys? 
Um, it's because uh, Philip and Andrew were both bilingual. They spoke Greek. They were Jews who spoke Aramaic, but they also spoke Greek. How do we know that? Because Philip and Andrew are Greek names. Uh, bilingual Jews in this period often had an Aramaic name and a Greek name, and Philip and Andrew are clearly uh, Greek names. So the Greeks hear that he's got two Greek-speaking disciples. They go to him. They go to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh, great, invite them over. We'll have a Bible study. Jesus, as good as says, oh, my goodness. That's it. Now's the time. I finished. That's what he says, isn't it? Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He means killed. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What's the logic here? Why does the arrival of Greeks signal the end of his ministry? I think it's as simple as the arrival of people from other nations signals to Jesus that his mission to the nation of Israel is done. And now is the time for him to die. Um, throughout the Old Testament, there are many texts that say God would first bless Israel and then through Israel the world, the nations. So right back in Genesis 12 uh, to Abraham, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, the Israelites, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, first Israel, then the nations. Or Isaiah 49, centuries before Jesus, speaking about the Messiah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles." that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The arrival of the Greeks tells Jesus that he has done all the persuading he can do in Israel. And now he must die like a seed so that many seeds may blossom, a reference to many nations coming in to worship Christ. And so he withdraws himself from the Jerusalem crowd and from the leaders in particular. In verse 35, this sort of ominous and I think key statement in the chapter, verse 35. You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is not just a narrative marker. It is deeply theological. It introduces the very difficult section that we're about to hear read, where John essentially says Jesus knew that he's done all the persuading he could do of these religious leaders. And now he withdraws his light from them and darkness comes upon them forever. From verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, 
they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in, believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them to the, at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Those uh, words about God blinding them and hardening them are shocking to us, aren't they? But actually, they make good sense in John's Jewish and Old Testament context. Uh, there are plenty of passages in the Old Testament where God hardens the hearts of those intent on tyranny despite persuasion. Perhaps the most famous example is in the preaching of the prophet Isaiah, 8th century BC, which is why John quotes Isaiah throughout this passage, because uh, in uh, the period of Isaiah, uh, he is called to preach to Israel, but look at his calling. The Lord said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Then I said, this is Isaiah responding, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. In Isaiah's day, the Jerusalem leadership, we know, was encouraging idol worship, oppressing the poor, engaging in child sacrifice and a range of other perversions. God sent them prophet after prophet to preach and to plead, to beg, and there came a point when God stopped trying to persuade them, where he withdrew his light and consigned them to the darkness. And John says... The same is true of the leadership in Jesus' day. They were given loads of opportunities 
to believe. In fact, verse 37 opens this section with a very clear statement. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. So God did in Jesus' day what he did in Isaiah's day. He withdrew his light from them. They would not believe, verse 37. So tragically, verse 39, they could not believe. I know this is heavy. I want to say that John isn't laying down a universal theological principle that God blinds those today who are resisting him. But he is pointing out in these Isaiah quotations that there's a biblical precedent for the perverse blindness of the Pharisees and the priests. God has withdrawn his light from them. And so there is darkness. But here's the thing. The scriptures teach that every unbeliever will face this same thing at death. At that moment, God will withdraw his light. And what John is saying is that happened to these leaders before their death. When Jesus withdrew himself from them in verses uh, 35, 36... He hid himself from them. That's the key. This was the moment where, from God's perspective, the curtain was closed on these Pharisees and darkness overcame them. And there will come a day when all of us will either be received into the light of God's eternal kingdom or God will withdraw himself from us forever. If I don't sound a warning like that in my last fortnight with you as rector, I will have failed my mission here. But I can't end on that tone because John doesn't. Do you notice he can't resist in verse 42 telling us that despite the hardening and blinding of some, there were others, even Jerusalem leaders, who did believe. Sort of, verse 42. Yet at the same time, so having just told us God's blinded the Pharisees, we just hear, but at the same time, many among the leaders even believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. This is fascinating because it ties into something we read in the book of Acts about these Jerusalem leaders in the months immediately following the death and resurrection. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, set in the months immediately after the resurrection, the apostles are preaching, and we read, Acts 6, the number of disciples in Jerusalem 
increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Where did they come from? Do they just sort of pop out of nowhere? No, these are the leaders who saw Jesus enter Jerusalem, who heard about the light and believed, but were too gutless to admit it in Jesus' lifetime. And so now in the months following the resurrection, they go, you know what? Blow it. Let's be obedient to our faith. They believed back in John 12, but they were quiet about it for fear of the Pharisees. But now they believe and they obey. This is the first of the three challenges, I believe, John chapter 12 lays down for us. And here I'll end first. No doubt there are some here tonight who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. You know that he's the saviour, you know he is the resurrection and the life, right? Fantastic. It's genuine faith. But you're afraid to own it in public. Because there are people's opinions you value a little too highly. For fear of them, you don't own your faith. You have true faith. But you're not obedient to the faith, is the way the book of Acts puts it. And I just want to say, please, don't seek praise from human beings when you can have it from God. Like, if this stuff is true, is it not the most logical thing in the world to pipe up about it every now and then? I mean, if it's not true, friends, blow it. Don't spend your Sunday afternoon here. But if it is true, how could we fear another human being? Instead of owning the faith in public. So I say, chin up, step up, speak up. Secondly, no doubt there are some here tonight who are still pondering the Christian faith. And you're not quite sure what to make of it. Now, the other thing I love about this church is that there are plenty of people who feel comfortable being at St. Andrews and openly not Christian because they're just investigating. And and that's fantastic. Long may it continue. All I want to say is please take the investigation seriously because there will come a time upon our death where the light will be withdrawn If you're still inching toward that clarity, it's because God is still holding out light. Don't lose the opportunity to know Christ. Thirdly and finally, I've got to return to Mary and her lavish devotion to the Savior. This cost her a bomb. I know she was rich, but friends, $60,000 in an act of devotion? And it cost her public criticism. What a wasteful woman. But do you think she cared? 
I don't think so. Especially when Jesus pipes up and says, um, no, she's with me. She knows my love and she's showing me love. Leave her alone, Jesus says. Some of us today uh, are devoted to Jesus right to the borders of respectability and no further. Because we're North Shore, right? We do everything in a measured way, conservative, respectful. Thank you very much. We are the grown-ups. And I just think we miss so much. Mary was an elite And the example of Mary calls on us to give our all intellectually, financially, emotionally, relationally to Jesus Christ. To go beyond the borders of respectability. Let's move to that uncomfortable place where people might think we're wasting our life. But the Lord Jesus just says, they're with me. They know my love. And so they love me. So Lord, will you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Have mercy on us, Lord, in our weakness and confusion and unbelief and fear. And help us to walk in the light while we have light. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Saviour.